Hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to our spoiler special podcast for Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, the seventh in the Planet of the Apes series, or is it? We'll be getting into that later on. And in case you're wondering, no, we're not counting Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes, that would be the eighth. Uh, and we're not even sure that Tim Burton himself would count that one, so there you go. To help me pick the ticks off the fur of Matt Reeves' excellent movie and pop them into our mouths for cleaning, I'm joined by three Empire colleagues. First up is our very own Planet of the Apesologist, a man who may mention he was on set of the movie even more than I named Drop Days of Future Past. It's Dan Jolin. Hello. Hey, hey, Chris. I had a great time on the set. Thanks for asking. A set of what, Dan? Of Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Were you on set of Dawn of the Planet yeah. of the Apes? and Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Really, Dan? Yeah. Next up, we have our very own Funky Gibbon, Mr. Ali Plum. I like to think of myself as the Graham Garden of the group. Uh, last but not least, a lady who's never been afraid to fling her critical poo at anything. <laughs> it's Helen O'Hara. Thank you. Helen, together, strong. Podcast. Well, I must say that your sign language is coming over really, <laughs> really well in this really audio good. podcast. <laughs> really Fantastic <good>. work. <laughs> I am a fail. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Ali just did something rude. Anyway, before we begin, uh, Helen and Phil DeSemian went along recently to speak to Matt Reeves when he came to London and grilled him mercilessly on the movie, you'd be glad to know, including third act stuff because, yes, get this, this is a spoiler special in which no stone of the movie story would be left unturned. So if you haven't seen Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, not Dawn of the Dead, uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, or if you don't know every ape from Chimpan A to Chimpan C, then high lead to your local multiplex, see the film, and then come back here. We actually didn't even have time to do that. So this movie doesn't for, you know, it it may pick up elements of battle. I'm actually really anxious to go back and watch battle now. And actually somebody told me it was, I don't remember it. I I, I saw it once as a kid. The ones that I saw the most were uh, Planet of the Apes and Beneath. Beneath terrified me. I thought that was so scary. So I'm really anxious to go back and look at, at battle and see what it is. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the third, the third, we were allowed to in this context. Ah, okay. The third act, the third act battle sequence. The third act. Which, which is we kind of brings the apes and the humans into into the combat that's been brewing, I guess, mm-hmm. and you'd hope we'd avoid. First of all, I'm just curious about the geography of the human settlement. Is, does that tally with San Francisco's it does. geography? Completely it actually, human? there is a building exactly where that building is, and it really? looks very much like that building except for the skyscraper coming out of it because the idea was that that would be like a historically preserved building which is on that corner right there at the bottom of California Street, um, and that they would have built uh, a project coming out of it that because the world sort of came to an end, civilization was yeah. that it would be stopped in time. Yeah. And so our thought was that that would be kind of a, um, a place that after living in anarchy for so long, they could all sort of you know um, band together and create a kind of fortress in yes. just out of, just for security but not not because of the apes but just because they didn't know what, what was out there in the world and, and the idea of trying to create you know this little calcutta like little you know village at the base of this skyscraper in a fortified space so that they could protect themselves from whatever was outside but that actually is all of the geography is pretty it's interesting because we shot the movie um partially in San Francisco, but actually mostly in uh, New Orleans and um, Vancouver, which is where we shot the wood stuff. But people who are from San Francisco tell us it looks very uh, much like we could have shot it in San Francisco. Yeah. So how, how much thought did you put into kind of working out the, the structures of both societies, I guess? Because you've got... Oh, a lot, yeah. You know, apes in uh, an evergreen forest, I guess, which is probably not ideal-like territory. So they've turned to hunting as well as, yeah. I'm guessing, foraging mm-hmm. for, to survive. And then what about the humans? How are they? Are they they were surviving. Fortune? Well, that was part of the reason why they were down where they were, because they're very close to the water. And the idea was, and the weird thing about it is, so of course you do all of this stuff and you hope it will show. I know for a fact that this is one thing that definitely doesn't show, but we thought that they were fishermen. And there are there were on those sets that we were shooting at, especially in New Orleans, where it was, it was summer in New Orleans. It was so hot and humid and dank. And um, we had rotting fish all over that set because it was part of the production design. James Chinlin is brilliant. He's our production designer. And so much of what he did is extraordinary. The fish, I didn't end up filming enough to justify the smell that we smelled all that time. But it was uh, the idea was that they were a fishing community and that they were close to the water and that they were there for security reasons and that they could fish and then bring back the fish. And we had hanging, stinking fish everywhere. Ouch. Yeah. But we did actually try to, you know, we tried to be as 
you know, for for something that's so fantastical, we tried to be as realistic as possible. And we tried to, even with the ape stuff, you know, I, I, we shot um, on primarily on, on real locations. And the last movie was shot 75% on the stage. And I wanted to take the technology into the woods. I wanted to be like, you know, our Dawn of Apes sequence, I wanted to feel like Apocalypse Now with the apes, like go into the wild. And um, so I asked Weta if we could literally shoot in the wild because I thought that it would take what they do and make it seem more realistic because if the lighting was more real, if the environments were as real as possible, would that not make it seem more real? And they said that that methodology would totally work. The challenge was to make the equipment robust enough to do that. So they did that. And we shot with native 3D cameras in the worst conditions ever. I got pneumonia. It was ridiculous. A lot of people got sick. It was hard, but it was cool. And, um, and so we tried to shoot in real places and we did a lot of research to make our ape civilization kind of parallel human tribal developments, but also be uniquely apey. So it's this weird kind of mix, the longest answer ever to your question. Yeah, but it was, it was like, it's meant to be realistic, but it was also sort of um, based in ape. Even like, by the way, the beginning, like the hunt, the idea of the way they hunt Chimps really do hunt in a kind of paramilitary Navy SEAL fashion. Mm -hmm. And so that was one of the, knowing that that was the idea, you know, like I was watching a lot of documentaries with, with our VFX guys. And as Mark and I, Mark Bombeck and I were trying to figure out what that sequence should be, that was sort of one of the driving elements, which is that really is the way that ch that chimps hunt, hunt. But then we thought, okay, so then now if they're evolving, maybe they've moved into the realm of the symbolic. And so the idea would be that maybe they would start to have this kind of tribal paint or war paint, and they might do that when they hunt. And so that it was this sort of weird thing where we just tried to base everything in something that had some reality to it, and it became this weird stew. Did you get... Um Simian pneumonia or just normal pneumonia? I got the I got I did not get the simian flu unless I'm uh, immune. But uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I got I, we, we we shot in some pretty one of the places we shot in New Orleans was this uh, power plant, which was uh, a pretty toxic building, I think. And, and when I got sick, the guy who was the doctor said to me, "You shoot in the power plant?" I said, "Yes." He said, "Oh, I think uh, that might have something to do with it." But it was it was cold, and I definitely I got sick in Vancouver, and I continued to be sick and then got pneumonia when we were in. We could have a whole separate podcast about what it's like to direct a major studio blockbuster <laughs> whilst being ill with pneumonia. <laughs> yeah. um, Cornelia, the the female character, uh, Caesar's partner. Caesar's wife. Caesar's wife. Judy Greer plays her. Um, yes, she does. And I understand that she actually had at her wedding a cake topper of two chimpanzees. Yes, she did. Her and her husband. Her and her husband bonded through his obsession with... Planet of the Apes and specifically Rise, I believe. And he introduced her to those movies and she was very emotionally affected. And then apparently they had Rise playing on televisions in the room where the reception was playing. And then on the cake, they had the, the chimps. So she comes in and she's telling me this, which was crazy. And, and then she was just... And meanwhile, she's like saying, you know, and I was just... Because we were seeing a lot of people and she was like, you know, I would love to be you know, Caesar's wife. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> and I just thought she was, I mean, I love Judy Greer. I think she's amazing. And so the only question was whether or not she could move like a simian. And so one of the things that we did was when I um, was casting, people would come in and they would be cast for the emotional appropriateness, whether or not we felt like they could do it from a performance level because it's performance capture. That's all about performance. But the other part of it is that they have to be able to move it's not just performance capture, it's motion capture. They have to move in a way to look like apes. Mm. And so Terry Notary, who is the, um, uh, he plays Rocket, but he's also our motion specialist, and he's a former Cirque du Soleil performer, and he trains everyone to move like apes. And so he, after I would find someone I really wanted to play a role, he would spend the afternoon with them trying to get them to move like an ape to see if they had an aptitude for it. So after she had so passionately come mm. in and talked to me about how much she loved this world, and I was like, oh, my God, I would love to have you, um, I called up Terry, and he, she spent the day with him, and I said, so can she be an ape? And he goes, oh, she's apey enough. <laughs> um, and what about then recasting uh, Toby Cabell for Cobra? Yeah. Because, I mean, that's obviously a much, much bigger role this time. Yeah, well, apparently, you know, the the the, uh, the guy who played Cobra last time was um, essentially a stunt performer and did a great job. But one of the things that we really wanted to do in the movie was, because it's performance capture, the reason that, that Caesar's so great is that Andy's a great actor. And we wanted the, the concept behind it is that you get great performances for each of those characters. And so 
when that character became as primary to the story, um, I knew that we wanted to get a great actor. And, you know, we watched a lot of um, work from different actors and saw rock and roll. And it was just like, okay, this guy's really powerful. And, um, and so, you know, it became very exciting to cast him because it was like, oh, we're going to cast somebody with that kind of vulca- volcanic energy opposite Andy, and that's going to be interesting. And, and it was. I mean, Toby was – he's great in the movie, I think. I mean, he – I think um, he gives – what's great about his performance for me is that he becomes so terrifying, but he starts in a place where he's very wounded and you actually have a lot of sympathy for him for at least I did and and I think to me for the story to work the idea was you know we wanted it to be almost this kind of Shakespearean story between two brothers you know mm-hmm. and and you wanted it to be this kind of thing where they had forged a brotherhood through you know Caesar freeing them from bondage and that if the humans hadn't shown up that the fault lines might never have been exposed and they might have been able to continue exactly in that way. They really were like brothers. They loved each other. There's actually a scene we cut out where after the hunt, after Caesar's son is born, he presents, they're doing all these tributes to Caesar and it's this really cool scene that's very kind of musical and we'll probably put it on the DVD because we we actually did finish it and the last minute I was like, oh, we should cut this scene because rhythmically it's keeping the story from getting where it needs to go. But in that scene... They're making these tributes and they bring the bear skin of the bear that Koba um, saved Caesar and his son from earlier in the day. And Caesar stops and, and waves it over and presents it to Koba and then signs to him and says, you saved my life today. Meaning essentially, I never would have seen my newborn if you hadn't done this. And then Koba gets very emotional and they put their arms around each other. And then Caesar, with their arms around each other, very emotional, looks up at the crowd and speaks for the first time and says, apes together strong. And it was a cool scene, but it made, it made the other scenes after it not play as well because it took too long to get to them. Mm. So we took it out. But that emotionality that Toby brought to it was just as key as the kind of wickedness that he, you know, the idea was to have empathy for everyone, even Koba, especially Koba, so that when Koba kind of broke that you could see that moment. And there's really a moment for me where you actually see the break and it has very much to do with Caesar's reaction. Caesar humiliates him. Caesar loses it because Koba presses the wrong button. He challenges Caesar as a father and he says, you know, you love humans more than, um, than apes, more than your own sons. And Caesar just cracks because obviously his sons are, I mean, he, he's a father. You can't you don't say that to a father. And he loses control of himself. And so Caesar, it's not just that there's a grappling um, with violence between the characters or between the species, there's also, for all of the characters, uh, an inner ter- turmoil. And that's true of Caesar as well. He, For the character who's the most empathetic in the film, he also is struggling with his own violent impulses. And in that scene, he loses control. And when he humiliates Koba to that degree, it becomes the breaking point. Then you realize that the brotherhood is over. And we realize it as the audience. And that has very much to do also with the way that Toby plays it. Anyway, longest answer ever. Sorry. And there's a, there's a parallel as well with the um, with the, the human characters. I mean, Malcolm and Dreyfus as well. No one's being unreasonable. No yeah. one's, you know acting for the sake of violence. That was the idea. The idea was for there to be no easy villains. You know, in the last film, the story was very stacked against the humans, and when you got the Golden Gate Bridge scene, you there was no ambiguity. You wanted the apes to win. They'd been so unjustly sort of imprisoned and treated horribly. And in this, given what the story was and what it represented, the fact that I felt the story could be the one moment in time where it could have gone a different way. It could have been Planet of the Humans and the Apes. And we know because of the 68 movie, it doesn't go that way. So that meant that the movie could become, as a story, an anatomy of violence, of the way in which we couldn't avoid violence. Why did that happen? And I thought that there was the only way to do that in a story that had any kind of resonance was to allow there to be no vi- no um, no villains, to let the uh, the each character have a point of view that you could understand how they arrived at it. I mean, Toby's character, Koba, has literally been, he's gone through an ape apocalypse. I mean, he, he, he's a, like a holocaust. He's essentially been um, tortured. And so, of course, he's not going to be able to have the empathy for humans that Caesar does because they had no empathy for him. Yeah. And the same thing for um, Gary Oldman's character, you know, the idea being that if you'd been through a crisis that had really come from 
despite where it's initially came from in the experimentation, like if avian flu through some experiment that we had had spread in such a way that it killed 99.9% of the world, we wouldn't really have a very good feeling about birds. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So he had been through an experience that robbed him of his family. And for me, one of the key things in the story was that the breaking point for both of those characters were that they didn't have families, that Caesar and Malcolm had families that they still, even if they were broken families, that that Malcolm had lost his wife, but he still had his son and he had a new wife. And the idea that this family unit was, was worth preserving and that Caesar had a family that was worth preserving, that those were characters who were trying to find a way to navigate through the violence, struggling with it, and that it was much easier for those who had lost everything, or in the case of Koba, somebody who had never quite had that experience, to not have that perspective of the preciousness of life. And so that was one of the story elements as well. And usually you have in the third act a, a dramatic impetus provided by the, the idea that the military is going to arrive. Yeah. They've called the military and they're out there and they're on their way. Yeah. And the film ends before they arrive. Yes. Do you feel beholden to begin the next film? No. In fact, we the original ending had the had the uh, the Armada arriving and I felt that it went too far. So at the last minute, very late, like in the last month, um, we cut that scene because I felt that it, too, it boxed us in too much to to the exact moment. I mean, that war is coming, and that part of it is absolutely that. That's part of what this movie is about. This is about the that that moment that passes where it could have been something different. But where exactly we begin for the next one is not in stone. And in fact, I thought by by having that ending that we had that it did put it too much in stone. So actually, you see in some of the trailers, I think there's a there's a shot of this ship. And that ship, it's not exactly the shot that we had. We had a shot where the ship was supposed to be far on the horizon. And the ending was very similar on Caesar, where it moved in on his eyes and he was staring out. But he was actually looking at the future. But the future was very immediate. It was right there on the horizon was war. And I think that it just felt like, oh, and now war is beginning literally right now, as opposed to, well, when does that war begin? How does it begin? How will Caesar respond? Um, And so I wanted to go back a step earlier. And so we changed the ending at the very last minute. So, I mean, this is a a franchise that almost uniquely among blockbusters, certainly, has downbeat endings pretty much as standard. I mean, there may may be notes of hope, and there certainly have been in in these last two. But, you know, generally speaking, overall, it's a really kind of... Bleak it's a tragic series, yeah. actually. It's a tra- it's about um, it's about a kind of uh, tragic trajectory of the human race, and and to some degree of the apes as well. When you kind of take in the breadth of this part of the story, I think it's one of the exciting things about the franchise because, you know, to me the interesting thing about genre is when you can take that fantastical element and use it as metaphor, and the idea is that that metaphor then enables you to get into story areas, thematic areas that you wouldn't normally do in a summer blockbuster. So we have all the same uh, spectacle and excitement that you would hope to have. I mean, we've got talking apes, we've got apes on horseback, we've got apes riding through flames and battle scenes. But at its core, the movie's kind of a drama, and it is a tragedy. And that's a really unusual uh, opportunity for a filmmaker to get to make something on that scale that's also there was a time when those kind of movies might be made but they're not made now certainly not on that kind of scale but genre enables you to do that and I think audiences get excited by it because if you can take those same stories that you know they do they do want to come and they want to be thrilled and they want to be moved um, and I think if you can do that in a way that has resonance beyond that sometimes they find that very exciting and, and hopefully that'll be the case here just very lastly, we have to wrap, but um, do you have a, a date for number three? You know, they did date number three. I don't remember what it is. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to think about it just uh, yet. No, because we just finished uh, and we just have to uh, kind of get, yeah, I'm going to go on a brief holiday and then we're going to start again. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Matt. You're back. Good. Let's begin. I guess, Dan, mm, as, the, as the Planet of the Apesologist, uh <laughs> I guess we'll talk a general overview of the film before yeah. we, we move on to specific topics. Um, what did you make of it? And and uh, what did you expect having come away from, I believe you were on set of Donald Trump. Yeah, yes. I was, I was. Uh, what did you take from that? I, I, well, I kind of, I feel like I've said this so many times now, but it's it's. I keep saying it, I was genuinely really, really impressed in that I thought the, as, as visual effects go, 
it's some of the best I've ever seen, but it's kind of hit a milestone in the sense that you're not really watching it and thinking what great visual effects, or at least on some level, every now and again, you remind yourself, actually, oh, yeah, I am. These are, these are visual effects I'm watching. But you, it's, it's a milestone in the sense that you're more aware of the performance of people like Andy Serkis and Toby Kebble and Karen Conoval and Terry Notary, who play the apes. And, um, and you're, not, you're not so much you know, thinking about it as, as CG. You're looking at it as, you know, you, you, can see, you can see the souls there, you know. There's light in the eyes. The uncanny valley is a million miles away. You know, I thought they were nuts taking all this equipment out into forests in the winter and swamps in the summer. And it really works because the lighting is so naturalistic. Michael Saracen, the, the cinematographer, he uh, did an amazing job. It doesn't have that kind of, you know, magic hour glow that just characterizes most visual effects spectacular films. It feels real and it feels warm. And it's, and it's, 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 a, it's quite a sad film as well. Very affecting, I thought. The wet fur and the and the mm. swinging through the trees. Do you know any more about how difficult that was to actually do? Well, I think with the lot, the thing is, it is a mix of performance capture. There is keyframe stuff going on. I know they really wanted to play down the keyframe stuff, but when you've got you know thousands of apes and they're all going through the trees, I mean, there's going to be a lot of keyframe stuff happening there. A lot of the horses were CG as well. Yeah, because you can't put horses at risk. Yeah, one of the very tricky things I think for Weta was even when they were riding real horses the position of an ape on the horse's back and also they had to take the saddles away because the actors were riding with saddles and they had to take the saddles away because the apes ride bareback so there's there's a, that apparently there was a very challenging thing but yeah the wet fur was astonishing i mean it's i saw some stuff early on and even then at that stage it was amazing how far they'd got it i remember dan lemon the visual effects supervisor saying to me that that they wanted you to be able to smell the fur Smell it with your eyes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, Ali. Very well put. That's a very good phrase. There were some moments that I felt... There were some moments where it's astonishingly well realised. Like, at the mm. very, very end, when you look into his eyes, it's... You just forget yourself. Uh, but mm, there yeah. were moments where you do see that's, that it hadn't maybe had as much time as the rest. I thought when... The little baby ape. I thought the little baby chimp. He didn't like that. And then and I didn't, didn't like it. It's cute, and everyone goes, oh, and it does exactly what it needs to do. But you are aware that... Yeah. Maybe more so than because it's it's a it's a baby, but uh, it's a collection of pixels. Uh, but there's a there was a moment when um, the the opening and closing close-ups are amazing. Um, a lot of the close-ups are amazing. Uh, but there was a moment when uh, it was raining and Morris, the breakout star of the movie, I think. Orangutans forever. Oh my god, um, Morris had matted fur, and I was just going, oh my god, this is amazing. I mean, we're a million miles away from Monsters Inc., which try to be photoreal, uh, but just didn't quite get there. It was, I don't know, it was something about <laughs> the colours. But um, there is something yeah. genuine. There's something to that because Monsters Inc. One of the few things that annoys me about that film, and I love it, but one of the few thing, things that annoys me is that, for example, when they go, when they're in the Himalayas, and they're they're going down the mountainside and everything, the not enough snow sticks to his fur. That was just like a little bit too complicated at that point to to make it work. And it's been a problem with the Ice Age movies as well. You know, the, the interaction of difficult substances um, has been difficult, and uh, and and I think we've now reached the point where they've 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 nailed that really. Yeah, um, it, was, I, it was astonishing. This didn't feel like a quantum leap in effects for me. It just felt like an incremental step from things we've seen before. It doesn't yeah. feel like they've they've gone that much further, even than the first one. It just feels like it's just getting better and better and better all the but time. But it's an incremental step, but it feels like it's an incremental step into new territory almost, if that makes sense. It feels like it's, that has crossed a kind of line. See, I didn't get that. I know you've, you've we've, we've talked about this before. I didn't really feel that particularly from it. I get that, you know, it is significant in that they're they're sort of stepping out of the volume, if you will, in terms yeah. of performance capture and that kind of thing. And, and I do realise that significance. But I don't, it didn't feel like this is a whole completely different level, and it doesn't feel like the the quantum leap that Gravity did, for example. It's interesting, isn't it? The, the effects in this are by Weta, yeah. entirely yes. Weta. Anyone else in this one? Frame Store or Dineg or anyone like that? No, no, no Weta one. Digital. Okay, entirely Weta. I mean, there, there's for years now. There's been a bit like DC and Marvel. There's been like a fanboy schism, hasn't it, between Weta and ILM? And obviously, there've been other companies coming up recently. The peerless work on Gravity by Frame Store. Frame Store. Yeah. Frame Store. This is the first time I've seen. For a long, long time, Weta do stuff that I thought, oh, ILM might be looking at this and going, okay, we need to up our game a little bit here. And as I'm saying this as an ILM fanboy. Mm. Uh, I thought the effects in this were 95% uh, 
Yeah. I'm wetter uh, till I die. You're wetter till, yeah, till I die. You've got the tattoo, haven't you? Yeah. 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 <laughs> did you get that? Did Matt Reeves give you that on set or in the edit suite or when he, you went to his house? Um, um, lived it for a year. With a pen and a hot, hot flame. <laughs> uh, I, I wanted to say, like, even in that 5% where it doesn't quite work, somebody pointed out to me, I didn't notice this, but when Caesar is injured and is put into the back of the Jeep, mm. that's a tricky thing to do. Mm. And somebody was saying to me actually that was a bit shaky but you don't because the film this is maybe what we're more excited about because the film is so emotionally engaging and because you really do care because the drama is so well realised because the plot and the directing whatever all comes together even when it isn't entirely perfect you're on board yeah. so your eyes and your brain forgives it even when it isn't good so I think that's why people are walking out the cinema going the special effects are absolutely amazing yeah, they are. And uh, so where do the special effects uh, come into play in terms of there is a, a, a campaign, I guess. I've been reading a lot about this in uh, online, especially in US websites at the moment where the film's open for it opened before us. Uh, so people have been discussing this more openly. Andy Circus have been quite focal about going on and, and chat shows and he's on our podcast ourselves this week uh, and talking about, you know, this is his performance on screen. But how much of it is actually... Weta, you know, we're talking about the uncanny valley, the fact that you can actually see Caesar's eyes, you can see emotion in his eyes. Uh, and that's maybe from Andy Circus, but that's also from the wizards at, at Weta who've had to, you know, augment and, and modify his performance. So what I'm saying is, do you think that this might be the performance that finally breaks down the barriers in terms of Oscar for um, performance capture? Or does it or does it still need to have the, the contribution of the effects teams recognised? Well, I would say to you, I'll ask a question back, um, how much would you say is the performance of Roddy McDowell, the character of Cornelius, and how much <clears throat> is it the makeup of John Chambers? Mm-hmm. Or, if you, let's, let's bring the Burton one into it for a moment, because Rick Baker's work on that is amazing. Mm-hmm. The film's a piece of crap <laughs> but the makeup work is astonishing and and how much would you say the character of Thade is is Tim Roth and, and how much of it is Rick Baker but there's a little bit of a difference isn't there with animation um, and I'm including visual effects in that in that um, you are not just stuck with what you have on screen it, you can tweak it later you could you know mm. there was the famous case where they added a teardrop to an actor's face at a, at a key Conley, moment yes Blood Diamond um you know, you can tweak the performance just a tiny mm. bit here and there, which can make a big difference. So it's not quite the same as makeup, in my mind. Mm. And I think if we, if it was going to be recognised at the Oscars, it should be a sort of a collective thing. You would be, you would be nominating the actor, but also the mm. team involved in that character. For me, anyway, might need a bigger stage. Uh, or do you think that they might just finally bite the bullet? And open up a separate category. We've been talking for years yeah. about: Do they have a category for stunts? Do they have a category? You know, uh, maybe they should have a category for digital acting. That's what I mean. <coughs> it would be a group oh, nomination. Right, yeah. Okay. So rather than saying anti circus, and not, here's another thing: If there was a groundswell of opinion and people really wanted to put him forward, would he be actor or supporting actor? Actor, lead actor, lead actor, lead actor. Yeah. Uh, Toby Kebbell supporting. Here's the thing: I don't think he'd have a chance of getting nominated for actor. Supporting actor, I think he'd have a better chance. Yeah, it's one of those weird things. I mean, the Academy do that sometimes. There's, 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 there's roles. Henry Seinfeld. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Also, you know, his his is the 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 first name in the credits. Yeah. Which is interesting and a heck of a breakthrough as well. If you're talking about digital performances, I mean, no, I know Avatar. We're talking largely by and large. Most of those actors were giving digital performances, Zoe Saldana and, and whatnot, but there were a lot of human performances on screen, uh, including Sam Worthington. And uh, yeah, I don't know, maybe this this, feel, this feels different to me, but I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I, th- I think the biggest advancement has been the improvement in facial capture. Mm-hmm. And um, Weta arguably are the world leaders at the moment in capturing facial performance and interpolating that into a you know digital form. And I think that's one of the reasons that everyone's noticed this qualitative difference with this film in particular mm. and they're that sort of you're crossing that line of forgetting that it's effects and noticing that it's a performance even more so than with with Gollum for example and i think that's i think that's the key to me is the fact that they are actually so much more specifically capturing every element of a facial performance how much they tweak it i honestly don't know i haven't sat over their shoulders and watched them but they say they don't and mm. they say that they oh, and, say and completely they, true, true to the performance and that goes all the way back to the two towers when they suddenly realise that actually 
the closer they matched Andy's face, even changing the structure of Gollum's face to look more like Andy, it had more impact, it had more effect. So I would say it's closer, this this film is closer to the actual performance, the original performance. In fact, so much so, it is the original performance. I read something really harsh. This is not my opinion. I read something really harsh on a message board. Andy Serkis and the fact that he has become known for these digital performances, you know, from Gollum, King Kong, uh, all the way, of course, to, to Caesar. And someone was saying, oh, if he's such a good actor, then how come he hasn't been nominated for a performance in his own? Well, obviously they haven't seen the injury biopic yes. for a start. Yeah, he's, great. he's great in that. Uh, but also, I think because he's he's a man who maybe inadvertently carved out a niche for himself. And went down a rabbit hole and said, oh, actually, this is really fun. I'll, I'll become a bit of a pioneer at this. And there's no doubt to me he's the, the leader in this field. I mean, you know, you're talking about makeup. People say, you know, how good was Lon Chaney outside makeup? He carved mm. out a niche for himself as mm. well. So he says something really interesting uh, when Ali and I interviewed him, which uh, you can you can listen to. Uh, from a few days ago, he said that he'd done Gollum, he wasn't expecting much, and then he was offered King Kong. And in his mind, and I, I totally agree with this, he said, oh, hang on a minute, it's impossible to be typecast now. What this technology does is opens up so many more kinds of role, the kind of thing that actor wouldn't have thought that they could play, mm. at least not to the degree... I mean, think of all the actors in uh, Greystoke, Legend of Tarzan, <laughs> you know, that were doing as good as they could and eight performances but under really heavy suits yeah you know well, it's like uh, people talk about when they're on the green screen it's like being in an experimental play because you you know it's one of those ones with no set or you know background whatsoever you're just pure acting mm. and i think it's it's maybe like that for him i mean it's worth noting by the way with all, with all this talk of sort of oscars and categories and makeup and so on most of the people who wore heavy makeup and did great performances through the years were never nominated and it's mostly because they're the kind of films and this is the kind of film that doesn't get nominated for acting Oscars same with you know most of the Lord of the Rings true and uh, someone told me again I read online that Judy Greer the great Judy Greer plays uh, Caesar's wife in this and who's you know Cornelia yeah. Cornelia um, who's barely used in the film uh, which is a shame that, you know she's a fantastic actress I don't see anything of Judy Greer in that performance uh, you would have had to have I would have had to read it online, but didn't know that, and I did. Uh, so I think these are great performances, but I don't see anything of Andy Serkis and Caesar. There I, was I really one don't. point where Judy Gray did pull up her top and say, say goodbye <laughs> to these, Caesar, and then ran away. So that's when I knew it was her. A breasted development. Hmm. Oh. oh, come on. But, all right, here's something. They actually changed Caesar's face slightly to be more like Andy's. Okay. Very slightly, very subtly. They moved, okay. the, they moved the shape of the brow. They just changed, made some very, very tiny, subtle tweaks to bring it a bit closer. And again, this is all to do with capturing the facial performance better. All right, so we talked about the effects that have brought Caesar to life, Caesar and, and Coba to life. And Morris, lovely Morris. Uh, let's talk about the characters themselves. And this is the, uh, the Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. One of the interesting things about this movie is that it spends so long with the apes, so much time with them mm. as well. And we get to know them before we even see a human. Yeah, I think it's. I think what's really nice about this movie is that, and, and Matt Reeves talked about this, so apologies if I'm totally just repeating him, but there's a really nice uh, mirror effect between the apes and the humans. With the humans, as you say, absolutely being the being the lesser partner, if you will, in that. But you've got, you know, this this ape leader who is struggling to do what is right and and pursue a sort of moderate path in terms of relationships with the humans and you know provide for his family and he's very family oriented he almost mirrors exactly jason clark's character and then you've got the the ape cobra sort of ruled by fear ruled by past trauma um very very scared to show any weakness or any accommodation to humans whatsoever and again that's mirrored by Gary Oldman's character who is again mirrored you know damaged by trauma he's he's also just terrified that this fragile little haven that he's built is going to fall apart under attack from these others and so it's it's a really nice kind of and subtly done dynamic between those four it's interesting though because on the human side the cobra is the leader yes and on the ape side the Malcolm is the leader, yeah. which uh, kind of gives you a hint as to where the sympathies are just being pushed the furthest. I would agree. <laughs> I think that mirroring is possibly the best, if not excuse, but reason as to why when you walk out of the cinema you go, that's great. I absolutely love Carrie Russell, uh, but I thought she was underserved and there just weren't enough female characters <clears throat> that actually had anything 
to them at all. They just weren't enough full there, stop. There weren't I mean, enough full stop. There weren't any that had anything to do. Because well, well, I, I thought that when I walked out and I went, actually, because of what they're doing about this protection and fathers and sons and, you know... Yeah. You know, I I kind of I go okay, so that's why. But at the same time, there was a part of me that thought, could Gary Oldman's character not be a woman? I mean, would that really have affected anything? No, it wouldn't have affected anything. And if anything, I would have, you know, I just I thought that would have been cool. To be fair, though, this is something that I think the the series as a whole struggled with right from the from from the off. But certainly, this series, this new iteration, you look back at Rise, for example. Sorry, you disagree. I am. Zira. Okay. You're forgetting Zira. I'm not forgetting Zira. I don't think she was as important as Cornelius and certainly not as important as, as Taylor, but, uh, or, or even Dr. Sayers. And, you know, but I'm talking about Rise, Freda Pinto, one of the most thankless roles, I think, for, for an actress in a major, major role for a long, long time. Uh, and it's been carried over, I think, in this one, sadly. Carrie Russell's a very likable presence, but the very fact that I had to look up that it was Judy Greer uh, playing. But uh, also, I mean, the, the thing that really annoys me is just it's it's... I get that we're telling a father and son story, another father and son story, an endless father and son story that runs she, through the she, whole she's cinema. <laughs> but no, genuinely, like there are so many father complexes on screen. I wonder that we need another. However, even given that fact, the fact that the only, let's face it, essentially two female characters are both defined entirely by being nurturing. I just like surely we've moved past that. If this had happened in the in the sixties, Planet of the Apes, that would have been one thing. But it's the twenty first century, yeah. and one of them spends pretty much the entire movie lying dying. <laughs> Actually, in the sixties, Planet of the Apes. Sorry to go back to zero, yeah. but she she's was, the head scientist. She was yes, and she's she the, a, the head zoologist or whatever. Yeah, you know, she's in a position of authority. Yeah, exactly. I, I feel like we're, this is a retrograde step in that way, and I, I it, honestly, it did really kind of colour the film for me and did it, it is my major reservation in terms of of liking and admiring the film is that it was it just so totally underserved half the human race hmm. half the ape race um possibly slightly more i'm not sure of the genetic breakdown hmm. of chimpanzees etc but um it just it, it did my nut in maurice is played by a woman yes played by hmm. I think we all are in agreement that we really enjoy this film and uh, we have, I'm sure, already recommended to our friends that they should go and see it and have been talking about it very positively. Mm. But, and this isn't like how I approach Prometheus, for example, which is with a chainsaw, critically. I do have a few niggles on this one and they're very minor and hopefully they'll come across as amusing, so please bear with me. <laughs> My first niggle is, at no point does Caesar say, et tu, Coba? Yes. Really annoyed me. Would have been such an easy win. He doesn't know Latin. He is a super ape. Let him know Latin. No, seriously though, Cobra's grand plan is, right, get a gun, get the hat off the guy who's a bastard who's locked in the car, go back up to the city, hide on this branch that's outside, and prepare to take aim and assassinate Caesar, right? Mm -hmm. So, he shoots him, misses, okay, fair enough. He wants to leave clues that a human did it. Of course, in this imagination, the human takes his hat off, puts it on the branch, takes his gun, puts it on the thing, and then yeah. falls off uh, after missing and shooting him in the shoulder. But the stroke of genius, and this is what I think again and again and again with this film, you keep thinking, oh, does that really work? But then you pushed it a bit, and it does work, because what Cobra does is he sets the city on fire. Mm -hmm. And who doesn't make the snap decision to go to war when your home is on fire? You just you just go. You have this instinctive, I must protect, I must, and everyone's suddenly up and arms and going. But there were moments where you go, ah, I'm not sure that quite works. Well, like, how good is apes' sense of smell? Would they smell cobra on the hat? There's a lot of that too. Also, I was thinking about the men in the armoury. Mm. There are two men testing the guns. When you're first seeing the armoury, there are loads of people outside of the armoury checking through the guns, going through them, but there are just two guys actually firing. <clears throat> There's no one else. There's no one there with a piece of paper saying yes, no, no, yes. There are no stickers being put on anywhere. Even though they are absolutely petrified of the apes coming and attacking them, there is no security. They don't have an, even a lock on the door. People walk in and out. When a stray ape comes in, they don't go, get the fuck out. They go, after a little bit of jiggery-pokery, ooh, it's a cheeky ape. <laughs> Twice. So at some point you have to think, you have all of these guns. Even if there are, weren't apes nearby, there might be humans. So how about we have maybe a door, possibly? Possibly, yeah. First off, the attack on Caesar happens so quickly that, and I think you're right. He sets fire to the ape village, so that there's lots of anger and that's that's have war. And hey, is that another comment on U.S. foreign policy? I see in a, in a major blockbuster. Yes, it is. But also, 
they don't have an ape Columbo. Like, you know, this is not chimpanzee scene investigation. They're not going to suddenly go get the forensics lab and, you know, look it up. No, no, I, I say that mainly for humour, but when you actually boil it down, it's plain. Oh, I didn't you go, get that. You go, oh, right, so it's the hat then. It's Great that. stuff, Mr. Ape. No, seriously, though, I do not understand the armory thing. It's foolproof. The armory thing. For a second. Apart from the joy of seeing Kenny the Natty from Breaking Bad mm. blown away yet again. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I agree with you. This, Here's a little bit of trivia about that character, by the way. Uh-huh. The character's name is McVeigh. Yes. Okay? And uh-huh. he is actually described in the script... As a Timothy McVeigh type. Ah, uh, that's subtle. Timothy McVeigh being the guy who uh, did the Oklahoma bombings, by the way. Yes. Who was a uh, American Nazi, basically. So there you go. That's interesting. And, and, and what you said about the US foreign policy, I mean, you know, every Planet of the Apes film, and this is what I love about them, except for maybe Battle of the Planet of the Apes, and maybe Beneath the Planet of the Apes. But anyway, what I love about them is they're all, there's, they're undercurrents in all of them, you know, there's, there's, there's agendas. One thing I will say about those armory scenes is that they have two of the funny moments in this film, yeah. of which there are very, very few. Yeah. But the bit where there are two fantastic moments. First of all, when he turns into the cheeky, um, after obviously he's been PG in... PG tips. Yes, <laughs> Cobra. he does that. But he does, he does it so unbelievably well. It's so both funny and horrifying at the same time that it can be that duplicitous. But when he turns after the second one... Mm. And his face just snaps back to, I could murder anything in front of me. Hee hee hee, I'm cheeky cheeky. I will destroy you. Yeah. I think Kebble's fantastic in this film. He honestly, really I think, good. almost steals the whole film. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, just, just to finish off this tiny niggle thing, is that it does, end, it does end in that traditional thing of, he's been injured, he's got better, but when it comes to fighting, he will match punch for punch and will survive yeah. being thrown around. No, and... I, think, I think, I don't agree with you on this one, because earlier on in the film... There's the there's the alpha moment and and Caesar shows he has the strength to take down Cobra, right? Oh, he has the I, physical strength to take down Cobra, but it's a more of an even match later because of his wound, because he's been damaged, because he's been hurt. Uh, no, no, you're not getting the point. That is okay, that's sorry. part of what I'm saying. Okay. But I think the biggest problem with the film, maybe aside from obviously the lack of female characters, is the it is willing to drop into action movie cliche when it wants to, and it, I at times you think this movie is above that. Obviously, when there's that gung-ho, I'm on a horse, I have a minigun, and another minigun, and I'm leaping over flames, a gorilla's just thrown a flaming barrel at a door. Like, there is a certain amount of, okay, this is a slightly different film to the previous hour. But when you have these two people on this industrial half-built tower throwing each other against walls, Mm. back-breaking stuff, all I'm saying is, the movie at times is so much higher than that, and then it does descend into, I'm sorry, that person has no spine. Do you know how physically powerful adult chimpanzees are? I don't care how powerful they are. When they get thrown against a wall, mm. look, I know this by another powerful adult chimpanzee. Look, I know this is preposterous because action movies. Yeah. The only way, I, yeah. reason I'm making this point is because the movie is so much higher than that. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah, I, yeah, I agree. Well, I, I, my, my, I, I thought the film was much better than the first one. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of agree. I think I, it, it, the ending slightly saddened me because it did delve into a typical blockbuster apo uh, apo confrontation above on something that was clump, collapsing and crumbling and I just feel I've seen that already this summer and it, it slightly disappointed me um, but the, I mean the, the also the, the kind of I guess it's, it is a kiss off line you are no ape is a a legal sophistry that makes that is just inexcusable um, because you can't have the leader deciding who's an ape and who isn't and who deserves mm. protection of the law and who doesn't but also it, it's just Again, it's just a little bit too glib and a little bit too... I think it's unworthy of what's gone before. I think he... I think Caesar... And there is, you know, there's pain in his eyes. The performance is still there and it's great. But I feel like it's a moment that is not as clever or as as nuanced as, as I think they were going for. Because it is just a sort of... It's a get-out-of-jail-free card. Um, he knows that Kobe is absolutely an ape. And he knows that ape shall not kill ape and yet he goes ahead anyway and flat up murders him perhaps that will be followed up on in this next movie which we decided would be called War of the Planet Mm -hmm. insofar as that Caesar for all of the highfalutin ideas he's had is breaking, is crumbling and if there is one big I think thesis of this film it is that 
apes are as bad as humans, mm. humans are as bad as apes, let's just be honest, we're all flawed people, we can't all mm. be perfect. During that fight sequence at the top of the tower, I swear to God there was a Jumpman slash Super Mario gag, because they do go round with a camera, <laughs> round, round, <laughs> sort of, and it's, it's exposed girders, metal girders, and there are mm. little ladders that go up to the top, and previously we saw a barrel being thrown, <laughs> um, intentional or not, or whether that was just wetter, I swear there was some Super Mario going on there. Well, I mean, talking about the action scenes, I mean, you know, to focus on the more positive stuff again, I, I was, I was, there were two, there were two sequences that I thought were brilliantly handled, mm. and, and it wasn't just to do with all oh, wow, look at the visual effects. The one was that I like to call the um, chimpanzer moment, which was when Cobra takes the tank, yeah, and it's a fixed camera on the turret of the tank, and that's just going round and round, and it takes you to the climax of that particular skirmish was it crashes through the doors and then comes to a stop and the fact that he he mounted that in that way i just thought was so impressive and 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 slightly slightly settled one but it was later on it was with um jason clark where he goes with malcolm goes back Mm. to his house and he's in his house trying to get out and then the ape shadows appear and they all start coming in and he's trying to find his way out with them getting and that's all one take and and uh, you know in those moments i was i was feeling children of men <laughs> do you know yeah. what i mean yeah. in that film um in ter- terms of how how it was visually handled outside of the visual effects i have another action compliment hmm. i thought that when they are having this big fight on the rooftop which i should say i really enjoyed like it is yeah. if you're willing to go down to that and of course i was to incorporate humans into that is a very tricky thing how do you keep the humans part of this stressful exciting final fight i thought the bomb beneath with them radioing in for help and with the trigger and then suddenly Jason Clark's picking up this gun and, and turning it on them. I thought that was a masterstroke. Yeah. I thought that was so clever, keeping them connected to it, adding more pressure up. I just thought it was really, really good and allows for beat breaks as the fight's going on. thought it was very good indeed. And Gary Oldman gets to be Gary Oldman, like that big kind of yeah. blow-up moment. I thought it was an interesting moment Politically, you talked about how Koba and Dreyfus kind of mirror each other. Well, I don't see Koba being willing to sacrifice himself for the ape cause the way that, that Dreyfus sacrificed himself for the humans. It was an interesting turn they took with that character mm. where suddenly he becomes evangelical about humanity. And I guess you, if you thought that, genuinely thought that, you know, your, your speech was on the verge of extinction, mm. having survived extinction already by the skin of your teeth... Mm. Maybe you would take that final step. Or suicide bombering, to put it in a slightly less flattering way. Well, yeah, you could say that. Also, when you have a gun on you and you're a bit of a maniac, you do do stupid. Does that come out of nowhere a little bit, though, for that character? I know what you're saying. I do know what you're saying. I do do agree. But also, just to do my final compliment on top of... I just want to put a bit of a cherry on top of this slightly stinky pie. I do love this film. I loved how... I thought to myself, why are they going to go and let them help with the hydroelectric dam? Why? That doesn't make any sense. And then it makes sense. They really get it out of you. The way he said, you know, Caesar says, I don't want any of my people to die. Mm. And you go, well, yeah, when you think of it out there, well, of course, you know, what does it matter? Let the humans go do their thing. We're doing our thing. I just thought time and again how that worked. Yeah. I was so mm. impressed. And also the lingering compassion for humanity, which also is is compelling and, and a great sort of character touch of his, that you can see that link from his childhood is still very much there and still very strong. I thought that was lovely. And that cameo, quote-unquote, of James Franco actually was not heartbreaking, but, you know, slightly yeah. eye-moistening. Mm. I, like, I, like, I like the way it tied in and then went back to Will's house and... I just like that, that that folded in itself quite, yeah. nice, quite neatly. And I'm impressed by the battery life of that camera. Oh, well, that would have been charging because of the... They um, charged it up. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was <laughs> left plugged charged. in. It was so left charging. Oh, good. Yeah. That's, that's, no, that's, takes, that's a good detail I missed. Yeah, okay, well done. Well no, done, no, well done Matt Reeves. Thanks for that. He takes the electric cable out, and obviously the electricity <laughs> oh, come back on. Of yeah. course, of course. Also, then you have that great moment, which we mentioned in the review, of the iPad turning on. Yeah. yeah. And you suddenly go... Oh, you know, because it's that Pavlov's dog thing of... Hang on, yeah. wait, have I got a what? Oh, and then you see this decrepit... I never thought seeing a decrepit, obviously T- barely touch alive, yeah. touchscreen iPad would make me go, oh, wow, imagine if you did see photographs of your family for the first time in years. Mm. Yeah. See, there you go, there's your source of what maybe did yeah. push him to the edge for the end of the film. Can we talk about how apparently the final... the final Because at the end it's very Jesus-like, this mm. golden glow, and they, it's a very church-like environment where all these... Infinite Monkeys, I mentioned this to you before, Dan, yeah. where when the movie wants Infinite Monkeys, by God, you get Infinite Monkeys. Infinite Monkeys syndrome arrives whenever okay. they need it. First of all, 
They're not monkeys. They're not very monkeys, good. okay? Yep. Second, Infinity, that's just exaggerating. Come on. And that's established to be fair, the I, You as I'm, a Discworld reader to I'm, say they're monkeys. I'm nitpicking. I thought I just thought that Infinite Monkey uh, is funnier than Yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> call me call me a comedian. Don't, because I'm not. But yeah, I just felt that sometimes that, that was the case. But anyway, in that church like environment, yeah. when you have this golden glow and everyone's looking up at yeah. him and when you get the big shot on the face. Apparently, I'm told, I've read, that that wasn't the original ending. It was not, and of course Matt Reeves talked about this um, in our interview. But yes, he, I mean, the original ending had it, uh, or his original ending, I should say, because the, the script went through quite a few versions, but his original ending until quite late on in the day literally had the ship arriving on the horizon with relief for the humans. Um, and he thought that locked them in too much to a specific moment um, for the for the next film, let's call it War. So he, he stopped it where he did just to cut off before that, which which I think is, is sensible from a storytelling point of view because we as the audience know enough to know that that, that is out there, that there is a, some kind of human yeah. military organisation that they have been called and that they are coming. See, that's, that's interesting. I... I never really got that sense in the movie. I got the sense that the humans who were telling that to Malcolm might have just been bullshitting him. I thought I thought if it had just been Dreyfus saying it, then I think you would have I would have had that impression. But the fact mm. that he gets the radio operator with his big honest face to go, yeah no I'm, His it, lovely honest face going Yeah no it's absolutely true. Yes. Uh, I'm not gun. just going yes, off the cue of the of my leader. Yeah. No 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 they're definitely coming. I think the ambiguity is uh, another great move. Yeah. yeah. I would say that I have an idea for the next film. Is it better than Andy's that he told us? Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, no, because he, he <laughs> yeah. wanted them to be on the Seychelles drinking martinis and then James Franco rocks up on a boat with Jet Seth Rogen. I, I said to Andy Serkis, what would your first word be in the next film? And he said, martini. <laughs> uh, anyway, so here's my idea. We've seen so many apes movies and we've seen so many different ways that they can be done. I was wondering whether with the final kind of goodbye between Jason Clark's character and Caesar. Would it be interesting to have maybe a group of apes that have some humans within their society just working together? It's not a problem. There's no higher or lower. But you have them together, for example, with the books and helping them to teach and read whatever, actually working. I know, I know. Let me finish. I'd like to see that happen with separately a the armed forces we're just talking about and separately another ape group. I know that might be making the ensemble too big like the Venn diagram are too big but if we do have these humans coming down and we do have this group of humans that we do care about Jason Clark and his family and we do have Caesar and his group would that not be a neat way of keeping some of them going no I'm just saying what you were saying about humans and apes working together that's that's Battle of the Planet the apes that, I, that's what's in Battle of the Planet I know. Which, which this film is almost a remake of in a weird way in the same way that the last one was almost a remake of Conquest sure. but anyway but no I mean, um, and that's what I'm saying yeah. I'm aware of that I mean, fact. I'm just thinking there's... in terms of like if you could have three different groups one mm. of them has that one of them's just I thought that's them. where this was going I'll, yeah. I'll be honest I thought Malcolm was going to join up with Caesar at the end rather than and, and stand alongside him I, I just thought for example if you have the apes uh, who are quite Resigned to the fact that oh, actually now the humans know that there we have the capacity to to shoot guns and kill them and blow things up and uh, even though we're not all bad, they might be coming to try and wipe us out. I thought it might help Caesar's case if the army or whatever it is rocks up in San Francisco and finds a group of humans standing alongside the apes, going no 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 no. Let me explain. It was this dickhead over here, <laughs> uh, not this guy who's yeah. played by Andy Serkis and is really nice. Ian, Ian Nathan uh, said he, he had an idea of how he thought it was going to end which, and he said if he, he was slightly disappointed in it in this way uh, he imagined that they would have the army turn up and it would be apes <laughs> and they would just basically this army would come hooray we say oh no well, by Tim Roth and Tim that, Burton how, yeah Tim Roth and Tim Burton presumably no I just it's, it was, it's kind of it's playing on the you know these films end with a twist you know what I yeah. mean it's just all these That's, apes already with uh, guns I think what's much more um, what's much more common with these films than the twist is the is the downer. Hmm. I think that is if there's a if there's a sort of common thread running through the ape movies, it is that they generally end on a downer. This one, it doesn't on the surface. I mean, in that you know, uh, Caesar's back in control. He's there with his family. The golden light is shining. Everybody's coming up and swearing allegiance. Jason Clark is safe to go off and live another day with Kerry Russell and uh, Kobe Smith McPhee. Uh, everything's okay that way but 
there is this looming threat, this cloud on the horizon, mm. quite literally, if they'd gone with that ship appearing. Mm. And that's, I mean, you know, by ape standards, that's a positively happy, happy ending. I don't know. There's but a, a lot of these films, I mean, the second one literally ended with the planet exploding. Yeah. And yeah. some of the others are even more depressing. It is a sad ending in one sense. You know, Caesar's basically saying, look, because of what's happened, we can't we can't stand together. Malcolm, you can't hang around here. I can't go and hug the humans and say, hey, let's work it out. Let's yeah. hug it out. They're coming. I've got a... We, line's been drawn now. Neither of us can cross it again. And that's why you have that symbolic shot of Clark receding into the darkness, the pitch mm. black darkness of the doorway, while Caesar is re-anointed in his cathedral as king. And war is starting. Caesar didn't want it to happen. Malcolm didn't want it to happen. Everything they tried to do, they couldn't make it stop. War is happening. But where can it go from here? Uh, If, for example, what sort of ship was it? Like an actual ship on the water? I think it was meant to be a gunship. He didn't specify. A gunship. We see it in a trailer. There's a very brief few frames of a, like you'd expect in the game of battleships, small frigate. Okay. So, say for example, okay, there is something arriving. There's a larger military presence out there. Mm. 2,000 apes probably whittled down to about 1800 or so by the end of the movie not all of which have are proficient with guns and whatnot that this war isn't going to last very long no matter how clever caesar is no matter how tactically uh, adroit he is well there is of course the other thing if that virus spread over the planet and killed humans do you know what else that virus did what did it made do? all the apes smart it made apes smart so could it be that there are more intelligent apes out there Yes, it isn't just this community. I think that's a very interesting idea. There is a more advanced, more well-read group of apes out there. Because mm. my my uh, before I before I saw Rise, my theory as how Rise would end was that it'd be like the end of um, <laughs> Night of the Living Dead, <laughs> where basically this uh, this this uh, ALZ one one three whatever, which becomes vaporized, somehow gets into the atmosphere. And I thought they were going to show it like raining down on the whole planet and all the jungles and apes all over the planet all going, oh, aware now, I'm aware. So, And I thought that's how it would end. I didn't realise it was going to end with killing off humanity. We, I thought it would just end with the planet of the apes. Or we have segregation where you have chimps, orangutans, gorillas mm. separating. That would be another way of doing it. So you think, and there could actually be monkeys with tails. They're not monkeys, There could Chris. be monkeys with tails. Well, in the, tales in, in, monkeys, in, Ali. In, in La Planète des Songes, the book by Pierre Boulle, there are baboons who are basically mm. a, a slave uh, sect of the ape society. Lower and class. in early scripts of, the, of Planet of the Apes, the 1968 one, uh, there are still baboons. They drop the baboons, but maybe they could bring the baboons back. I want baboons. Give me baboons. So you're saying the simian flu actually can make monkeys and apes smart? Maybe the simian flu makes other apes smart. Maybe mm. maybe it's spread and somehow it can spread to apes. That seems like a stretch. But also, the <laughs> Caesar... <laughs> they just planted in the I apes. know, I know, I know. <laughs> but also, Caesar is patient zero. Everything stems from him. The the apes' intelligence, their mm. their ability to talk, their ability to you know read and interpret sign language, yeah. all comes from him. No, it doesn't. doesn't. It does. No, it doesn't. Cobra. Cobra was uh, in, uh, independent of Caesar in terms okay, of development. Fair enough. Cornelia was as well because if you remember from Rise you had the apes that were being experimented on and they were already intelligent inside of the uh, Genesis facility whereas what Caesar did he took went in and he took it out and he advanced the apes that were in the in Brandon's you know but he was nasty more place refined, more refined more cultured more intelligent well he's double dose Caesar's double dose he was born with the super intelligence because he was born of bright eyes who was basically effectively patient zero i guess mm-hmm. um and then when he he inhaled the stuff again in rise so he actually got double dose so he's he's a he's a chimp plus plus interesting and so james franco he's a very clever man yeah indeed yeah. He's an educated clever. chimp yeah polymath is uh, chimp daddy chimp daddy there's there's a is 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 franco dead in this in this world i say yes i say yes yeah, the the idea of apes speaking alone is very very interesting to me. I've I've seen some people uh, ask why the apes use sign language when they can speak. Can they all speak? Is that something? Because it seems to be it seems like almost like an effort for the apes mm. to speak. Something that they they do only as a last resort. Yeah, I think they have to learn to speak, and it's possible that you know their larynx and vocal cords are not lined up for it to be their most effective, easy way of communication. Whereas they're so agile mm. that it could be that you know sign language is just quicker and easier for every day whereas we know that by the time 
Planet of the Apes comes around or they're fluent. Oh, absolutely. I think there's I think it's a number of factors. I think and, and I think the film tackles this really well and it's really interesting. And I know they spent ages exploring and talking about it and researching it. So, you know, they communicate in a kind it's a cocktail of of methods. But actually a majority of human communication is not verbal. We actually communicate with each other a lot more than we realise without saying anything. But in in the wild, certainly, chimpanzees have a lot of vocalisations. They actually have their own language. Certain vocalisations mean specific things. But a lot of the time they don't vocalise because they have predators. For example, tigers, you know, in some parts of the world. And they sometimes it's better for them, or they are predators themselves and they hunt, and it's better for them to communicate silently. And they do that effectively. So they've kind of, this feeds in, you know, at the end of the day, they've only been evolved in inverted commas for 10 years so there's still a lot of instinct there to communicate in the normal natural way that those apes do but then there's the sign language which was the way that they could communicate with humans originally and then there's this new ability they've got which has happened because and the only reasons that chimpanzees in reality don't talk is because their larynx is in just the wrong place Mm. because they're not fully bipedal and as you, as we evolved bipedally, it moved down, and then we were able to make all these noises we couldn't make before. Whereas, because being bipedal served humans, chimps still climb trees, what have you, they don't need to be, so there's theirs is in a different place. However, if you notice, all the apes are more bipedal by now. They're yeah. gradually going upright, which means they're starting to literally find their voice. And Caesar was more advanced, and Cobra's more advanced from what we were discussing earlier. So, very long answer, but that's, yeah, that's why. No, it's good. I, I also feel <laughs> it's because you've got to have kids. You see the school there that Maurice is teaching at. I think not all, I think it's easier to learn sign language immediately, I'd imagine, as an ape, I imagine, <laughs> uh, than suddenly going, so do you fancy a brew? Mm. Um, and also, I think the sign language, uh, as, using sign language as opposed to original chimpanzee language which may be in, ingrained chimpanzees um yeah, chimpanzees very good that might be because it helps them use abstract con- uh, concepts yeah. which they and I are aware of as they are intelligent so that would be why sign language yeah. and not just you know there's actually a real case of a chimp being returned to the wild who learned sign language that when she returned to the wild she taught sign language to the other chimps awesome yep yay for chimps it begins <laughs> we only have ourselves to blame and no one's seen James Franco for weeks. I'm getting, <laughs> I'm getting really worried about this. And we're all sick. So yeah, yeah. Uh, I've got a cough. Yeah. Ali's not feeling well. Helen, you're not. You're a bit peaked. Yeah. I got over it, so I'm Dreyfus. <laughs> more, more ways than you know, Dan. <laughs> um, uh, I think we should start wrapping this up. We talked sufficiently about where this can go. Uh, and what I mean is everyone seems to think that this is heading inexorably towards a remake of Planet of the Apes. Uh, and I also wanted to talk about where this fits in in terms of the series itself. Now, this is, in theory, the seventh movie yep. in the Planet of the Apes sequence. We're not counting the Tim Burton movie, which was a mm-hmm. which was a, an ill-fated reboot, although it did really well at the box office. It's one of those weird things. You look at the box office of that movie, it was huge back in 2001. Huge, but nobody liked it, so it didn't uh, beget a sequel. When does that um, happen, Chris? Can you think of any recent films that were huge that nobody liked? <laughs> uh, no, true, but I can think of many films that were huge and nobody liked it. still got sequels galore. Hmm. And it's interesting that didn't happen with the Tim Burton movie. But uh, anyway, going back to so seven... Planet of the Apes movies, uh, you would think we're heading towards a remake of Planet of the Apes at some point. Uh, and Dan, obviously, we saw there was a little Easter egg in Rise, wasn't there? I think a lot of which a lot of people yeah. have seen. But if you yeah. want to talk about where this, where, where you think this place is in, in well, terms yeah, of franchise? I mean, the, 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 actually, it's one of the differences between this and Rise because Rise had so many Easter eggs. It had so many little references, little winks to to Tom the original. Yeah, to the planet. Yes, yeah. A character named Jacobs, Arthur P. Jacobs, and Will Rodman, Rodman Serling. Anyway, and they had that. Yeah, the news footage of the Icarus mission, which you're not going to call a mission Icarus, are you? But anyway, <laughs> really, you're not thinking that one through. HMS inevitable you know, disaster. Exactly. You know. And by the way, in the original Planet of the Apes, it wasn't called Icarus. It just got named that later, and and that's why they went with. It. Anyway, so you see that you see the rocket taking off, and then later on, there's the newspaper headline. Mars mission goes missing kind of thing yeah those little hints but I think to be honest I don't think they are heading for a remake of of the original Planet of the Apes I think what they're trying to say is we're telling the story of how that could have happened Mm. 
and by the way, ignoring the films that came after it completely because these films are effectively remakes of those films. Yeah, the, the Hobbit doesn't have to lead to a remake of The Lord of the Rings. I think that's the sort of the, the parallel in this case. You know, just because you're telling a prequel story doesn't mean you then need to redo the the original sequel. And also, Planet of the Apes takes place presumably thousands of years exactly. after yeah. the events of these movies. But where does this fit in in terms of, of, of that series? If, for example, you say the Icarus that disappears... Hmm in Rise of the Planet of the Apes mm. has Charlton Heston on it so therefore it does place it within the same time frame does it though because as you as you pointed out um, Battle uh, Escape mm. from the Planet of the Apes no, no Escape, escape they, yeah. but they, they come back to um, well you see Escape the from the, what Escape from Planet of the Apes did and, and this is a bless I love the franchise what Escape from the Planet of the Apes did was basically say the only reason the Planet of the Apes ever came to exist was because of a time loop it's a paradox it's 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 a circular universe because Planet of the Apes couldn't have happened unless Zero and Cornelius would eventually go back in time to make it happen to give birth to Caesar. Yeah. Or he was called Milo when he was born, but he changed his name to Caesar, who would then lead the rise of the apes, which would then lead to eventually the Planet of the Apes. So that 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 that's a whole different science. Terminator. Fiction. Yes. Exactly. And it predates the Terminator. I know, I'm not saying it doesn't. I know, I know, but you know, that's 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 why Planet of the Apes is so good. So, sorry. <laughs> is it good though? Yeah, I love it. Oh. Um, I don't love all the films, but I just love the madness of the concept of it because it's it's not just talking apes; it's time traveling talking. Apes. I think we need a Fast and the Furious <laughs> Planet of the Apes crossover. Drift of the Planet of the Rise of the Apes Eight Tokyo Fast and Furious. Fast and Furious. Well, hang on, you know, with, with you know, Fast and Furious, they just cannot get their titles figured out. Planet of the Apes, you know where you are. It's, it's something of the Planet of the Apes. No, it's never it's, anything but. Unless it's Escape From. Or Battle 4, wasn't it? Oh, right, then. But it's still Word Word Planet of the Apes. Oh, OK. Or Word 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 Planet of the Apes. Well, that clears that up then. Uh, but no, Chris, your idea is that eventually at some point there'll be some kind of time. I guess mm. Charlton Heston is away and then through the nature of space travel, 2,000 years disappear. Yeah. And but, I, but yeah, but what I'm saying is effectively that we're looking at these movies as continuations of the franchise, but they're not really, are they? They can't no. be. It is a reboot, but it's yeah. a reboot. It's a reboot that plays with the... Also, if they remake Planet of the Apes, I mean, what's the point of the ending? We already know it's Earth all along. And by the way, I'd cast Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe? As Doctor Says. Legitimate. <laughs> As Taylor. Except I change his name to Ulysses. <laughs> Does that come from the original That's book? That's the original Dan? book. Yeah. Ulysses is, oh, okay. is the name of the uh, of the Taylor character. Alright. And this is why you're here. You're the apesologist. <laughs> You know all. You you know all. Uh, all right, brilliant. Uh, I think that's a good note, Mitch. Then I'm sure there's loads of stuff we haven't discussed. As ever, if there's anything that you think we've missed, do contact us. We're on Twitter as at Empire Magazine. You can email us as well, podcast at Empire Online. Until then, the next spoiler podcast will be Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy. We'll have director James Gunn uh, talking about that in great spoilerific detail. That will be up on August fourth, Monday, August fourth. So do. Uh, come back for that one. Until then, it is farewell from Helen. Toodaloo. It's farewell from Ali. Toodaloo. It's farewell from Dan. Goodbye. And it's farewell from me. See you next time. Thanks, mate.